Welcome to the Bold Acting Interview for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Today I speak with actor and creative Sean Benson. Sean Benson was born in 1976 in Guelph, Ontario. The son of an English professor and a German literature professor, Sean started his creative career as a ballet dancer and a musician. He completed his undergrad, a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry at Western University. But then fate intervened. Upon seeing a play at the Stratford Festival starring national treasure Colum Fior, something switched on in his brain. His early acting work includes roles on General Hospital, Being Erica, and The Associates. Career highlights include the films Bitter Harvest, Trench Eleven, Ark, Populaire, and the CSA-nominated Kept Woman. Apart from acting, Sean holds black belts in karate and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he writes and directs his own projects. I met him in his Meisner Technique class here in Toronto. Recent acting work includes The Boys for Amazon Prime, Mayans MC, Tiny Pretty Things, and MGM's Billy the Kid, which is shooting in Calgary, and that's where I caught up with him today. Sean Benson, how important is confidence for an actor? Oh my God, I love this question. I love this question. So I do a karate, well, not just karate, but me and my karate teachers and one of our sword teachers, we host a karate YouTube show where we interview old masters. And sometimes they'll be karate masters, sometimes jujitsu, sometimes judo. But the other night we were talking about what it takes to be a champion. And I said, you know, and everybody said wonderful things, discipline, goals, preparation, you know, really wonderful, deep standard stuff. And I, I said, the only thing I want to add is an unreasonable belief that you can win. Unreasonable. I think it has to be unreasonable. Like the example I used on that, and if anybody listening is a fight fan, uh, Dan Henderson, great UFC guy, one of the toughest guys who's ever competed. And I would like to go toe to toe with him. Now, I'll tell you right now, today I'd get very hurt because I haven't been training the way I normally do because I'm shooting. But if you said in six months you get to fight him, I have a belief that that would go well for me. Now, I might be wrong. That's okay. You know, I believe at age 49 that I'm a bee on the billboard near Chateau Marmont on Sunset Strip. I've been on billboards. Before I ever was, I believed I basically should be. Now, is that unreasonable? It's totally unreasonable. Nobody should be. And nobody at 49, who's got a good career, by the way, but... Why would I just get to be on that billboard? Well, why wouldn't I? They got to hire someone for the next show that's going up there. And I've got the Palmeiras, the record, that gives them permission to make it me. When I was 25, the permission was my theater work. Before I did theater, my permission was theater school. And before that, my permission is, don't you know who I think I am? So I think when people get into manifesting, they miss the forest for the trees. The forest is... Can you picture yourself as the lawyer, as the baller, as the crypto bro, as the person on the billboard? Can you picture it once? Great. You now have a North Star that you can believe. Now stop manifesting and get to work.
so just unreasonably picture yourself and go, I actually could see that. If you can't, there's two things that'll make the difference. One is a volume of work. We give ourselves permission through the work, but I actually think also therapy. If you genuinely are like, why can't I picture myself on a billboard even once? That being a metaphor, of course, or literal. Call a therapist and go, I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor in big movies, but I can't see it. I don't believe I'm worth it. I don't think an acting class will unlock that for you, but the volume of work you do in an acting class might give you permission to do what you know you're capable of. And then the therapy will let you not have the upper limit problem that will let you not sabotage it when it starts to come. Can you fake confidence until it actually shows up? Can you act with swagger and people will believe it? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, this is the irony of what I just said. I'd probably be a better actor if I had been less confident. I really admire actors who actually don't want to be seen as much as I want to be seen. I'm just speaking personally right now. I think sometimes the sheer joy of shooting even the deepest, darkest scene, knowing how much it's going to hurt, the fact that I'm on set doing that and get to do it, prevents that last 5% of true pain or true loss that might make it Oscar caliber. And I'm, I'm working on that, but I'm also okay with that. Um, but I think authenticity is key. So when I, okay, so we'll probably talk about this, but I had a really auspicious beginning. My 20s, I did a bunch of theater, leads in theater, great reviews, got a lead in a TV show as my first ever role, shot a blockbuster movie, another TV show, another TV show, but I had a booze and drug addiction that destroyed all that. When I rebuilt my career, I would walk into rooms trying to replicate what had made me hireable in my 20s. Now in my 20s, I had basically dissociated, disassociated from pain through childhood things. I basically learned how to live in fantasy. So the irony is that even though my confidence was based off of a partitioning of self, it was actually very real. I'd won so many awards and trophies and I just was like, of course I'll be better than anyone else you could hire. Now, what I didn't know is that there was a part of me I'd hidden that didn't believe that. And that's part of the reason I needed to disappear in booze and drugs and had anxiety I'd never acknowledge, etc. Now, when I get on the other side of that, I get sober, I'm going in for that first year or two auditioning again as a healthy man in his early 30s, but I'm speaking with a voice that's no longer mine, trying to book work and wondering why I'm literally not getting hired once. I'm like, I'm healthy, I'm happy. I made up a, a fake t-shirt that I should print that says, I'm 30 days sober, where's my three picture deal? Because you just think, well, why wouldn't that come now? Because I've already had a taste of it and now I'm even readier. What I had to find was a different voice that was authentic. And by the way, my 34-year-old, 35-year-old voice when I started booking work again was very humbled and not exceedingly confident. But what I was confident in, Jason, was my work. I know I'm good at this. And I knew I was good at it. And I'll tell you what let me know I was good at it. My fucking acting classes. My acting classes, one after the other, they kept going well. And I was like, great, I know I got this. The, the acting classes you were a student in. Oh yeah, I, I, I wasn't teaching at this point. So I knew I could do it. I knew I was good at it. I just hadn't unlocked how to walk into a room and show anybody that. 
And what did that what did that authentic voice sound like? How was it different? Yeah, how is it different? Well, this goes back to the idea of not being able to fake confidence. When the casting directors in Toronto would say, how you doing today? I'd say, I'm nervous. I, uh, I really want this part. And I, 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 I don't know, I've been uptight in auditions lately. And they'd be like, oh my God, that's, well, we get it. And I'd be like, and as soon as I said it, it would take the air out of it. And they'd be like, well, are you ready? I'm like, yeah. And then I'd just go. And I actually was talking to a friend about this the other day. I think I even overdid it a bit because I'd been so f- truly and falsely confident that paradox is not complicated to me. It was a disassociated confidence. So when I started to integrate and become a, a man, not a boy dancing around different versions of himself, I think I overowned like the navel gazing, I don't know how I'm doing. But it was an important thing for me to do because I was exploring the other side of my truth which is that I don't know how I'm doing. I don't know if I'm doing, I don't even know how to frame that question. I'm a year and a half sober, I wrecked my career, I'm 60 grand in debt. I don't know, but I also feel good today. So that truth of uncertainty, let me start getting hired again, but it took me a sec to own it. And then I remember shooting a movie in France, one called Populaire, and afterward the director said to my girlfriend at the time, he goes, you know Sean's only problem, and this isn't me patting myself on the back, he goes, he just doesn't know how good he is. Um, and I don't, I don't know how you digest that and do anything with it, but it was nice to hear. And it becomes part of the aggregate where now I'm supremely confident, Jason, when it comes to acting. I mean, you can hand me any set of sides. You could hire me for Marvel tomorrow or indie whatever tomorrow with whoever. And I just go, great, finally. I made my way back around full circle but with an integrated sense of self that is able to look any man or woman or person in the eye and go, I don't know how this is gonna go, but here's everything I got, let's do this. And most importantly, when they say, great, that's a wrap on the day, I'll go home and not really think about it much. Unless I'm thinking about it relative to tomorrow's scene actually comes before, so how do we make sure it matches tonally? That's different. That's professional thinking about it. But I won't be attaching my ego and my sense of self at the dinner table to, I think they liked me, or I wonder how that, it's like, I can't control any of that. Sean Benson, you're a big fan of provoking your scene partner. Can, yes. you, can you talk a little bit about that? Now, I don't think acting's competitive, but in a scene, somebody wants something and somebody probably doesn't want to give it or vice versa. And David Rotenberg, the acting teacher in Toronto who just passed and I trained with a lot, he'd call it a knife fight. He said, scenes are a knife fight. We're not doing a high school play where we agree on how it goes. It's actually important that you're caught on camera not getting what you want. And so, I, I don't know how to be affected on purpose, but I know that when I try and affect you by being provocative, that I'm extending. And the sheer act of extending, whether you ask someone for a date or whether you're fighting and you extend, you now have open ribs. And so I've, I, I kind of intuitively understood that the more I put myself out there, let's say I put myself out there provocatively and I'm perceived as a dick. That's still vulnerable. I don't always know how to be affected, but if I go out onto you, then you'll surprise me with that rib shot, so to speak. And it doesn't always have to be antagonistic. It could be gentle. 
It can be you looking at me as I'm on you, on you and go, you look tired, man. And I just, we've seen this in class and you just break down. It can be loving. It can be present. So I just want to be really clear that to be provocative isn't always to be shitty. It's just to be on the other person relentlessly. And it's the greatest gift I ever got from this way of working. And again, if we go back to Meisner, Sanford Meisner's contention was the actor's whole problem is that they're self-centered. They're up their own ass too much. They're always thinking about themselves. So these exercises were, for the most part, developed to put you on your scene partner. You always will know how the scene's going by what your scene partner's doing. I'm trying to get you to give me the keys to the safe. I know if I'm getting them or not by how you're responding in real time. Not what we talked about at dinner the night before are the themes and whatever of the scene. What's Jason doing when I'm on camera and going, seriously though, man, I, I fucking need those. And I'm sticking to the script, but our behavior is the improv. We don't need to behave in accordance with the story that's already written. In fact, if we do, we're probably doing that version of high school acting. You know, um, a, a real adult knows that when you win the lottery, it's not just joy. There's an immediate wave of, do I tell people? Who's going to ask for money? Um, uh, do, I, am I, do I even want this? This is going to change everything. And that's what David Rodenberg would call swing. You go through a breakup. It's not just sorrow. You're free for the first time since you met that person. So there's both. I'm falling, I'm free is what he calls it. And you don't play it. You just, you know it. Uh, recently on a podcast, I heard Willem Dafoe talk about... Uh how he doesn't really know, you know, uh, he said it's something nebulous, like, I don't really know about the stuff. I don't know about this. And I think he meant, I don't really know about the lines, but it's about being present and committing to it a hundred percent and offering up myself to something or someone. Um, fun fact, Jason, I'm shooting at a place called the CL Ranch. I'm shooting Billy the Kid out here for MGM. And the last time I shot something here was a movie called Togo with Willem Dafoe. And on the very street that we have our warm-up house, there's a bench in front. And I was sitting with Willem and I said, hey, man, do you mind if I like talk about more than just how your day is going, some acting shit? He's like, yeah, what, what do you want to talk about? And I was like... How do you create character? Do you create character? How do you think about it? And he goes, you know, I look at what the guy's got that I got. And I leave all that alone. And then I look for what I don't got. And it's usually one or two things. And that's what I just commit to. It's funny you use the word commitment. He goes, and I just, I make it up or I, I research it. But there's only one or two things I got to add and the rest I just leave alone. And I love that idea. And there's an apocryphal story with De Niro, who is known as such this in the moment method guy. And an interviewer once said, what do you do when you're not feeling it though? And he just said, I act. Can you just be the guy? Can you be the woman or person? Can you go? You just gotta breathe and go even if you are scared, the courage. Cause it's okay to be scared before a take two, even if you're playing the hero, that's probably a cool thing, but you gotta go and you gotta commit. And sometimes, I remember the first movie I did, you just had to look at a thing and go in this Russian accent, Captain, we are drowning now. We have to rise to the surface immediately and like scream it. And you just had to do it. 
There wasn't any scene partner. There was no way of working into it. So the idea that Willem's just like, you just find the one or two things you don't have and you got to commit. I love that. Sean Benson, what's been your best creative decision? What a great question. I also love how you say my full name before these questions. Sounds like it's good. Um, my best creative decision. <laughs> oh, I think my best creative decision was to do this, period. Like, I was a biochem student at Western. I was doing plays and dance shows at night and martial arts. And I just realized that I was much happier at night. I went to see a matinee of Confiore doing Cyrano at Stratford. And I did the whole thing where you buy the cheapest seat and then at halftime you go down to the front row. And I'm watching the second half of this play. And Confiore gave maybe the best performance I've ever seen on stage. It's hard to say because there's so many lovely ones happening in Toronto lately. But at that point in time, I, I didn't even understand what I was seeing. I was like tears streaming down. But I watched every guy behind him, the 20 to 30 year olds at Stratford. And I was like, and again, I don't know if I was right or wrong, but I was like, I'm better than these guys. I could be on stage doing that. And in that moment, I realized that 50 grand a year as a theater actor, I was making up the number. I don't know if that's what they make. I have no idea what Stratford actors make, but I was like, that's done. And that night I made the decision. And the next day I went in and talked to the Dean of my college. I said, Hey, I'm on an honor stream, but that means another year. Can we make this a general degree? And I, I leave at the end of the year. And I just started applying to theater schools because the creative decision was to be a creative. The creative decision was to hang it out, burn my boat, so to speak, leave everything I knew behind in terms of the path I was on, because I was gonna be a lawyer or a doctor, or something in that ballpark, and just go, fuck it, I'm all in on this. And I have been ever since. My, my journey with it's constantly evolving because of how much I have or haven't been attached to my identity as an artist. And uh, I actually wanna pivot this back to a bit of the thrust of your podcast as you explained it to me, is for anyone listening, don't define yourself only as this thing. You're just who you are, and this is a thing that thing does. You know, the way Eckhart Tolle says, you're not the one reacting in traffic, you're the witness to it. You're not an actor, you just happen to be acting. Now, I don't explain that to the guy in the bus who goes, hey, do I know you, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm an actor. It's just easy. But I don't go home at night. Today, I'm just talking to you today. We're talking about this thing. and. There's been times where I've been so hyper attached to it that then my art or my creative decisions will be driven by that. Usually the irony is the more I attach to it, the more my creative decisions have nothing to do with the art of acting and have to do with my aching need to be seen as it or seen as successful at it. The more I shed all identity, and I'm not even kidding, it's like that Jim Carrey kind of thing, like don't care. I even just used the name Sean so we know who we're talking about, or in your case, Sean Benson. Um, I, the more I shed, the more I'm able to make the art just about the art. And this even goes to auditioning. I was just talking to the director on this project, a wonderful guy named Adam Kane, but every director I've talked to since I started teaching says the exact same. You, as an auditioner, especially in the self-tape world, 
you get one chance in this life, or not within this life, with each role, to do your version of it. Even if they love you and bring you back for a callback or producers or screen test, you'll get notes. So now you're in collaboration, which A is beautiful, that's what we want, but it's, you only get one time to go, here's my take on it, without any notes. And I really hope you all take that opportunity. Don't be, don't be afraid of auditions. Be excited by the opportunity to show what you think you got. There's a, one of my favorite tunes from Bruce Springsteen is Badlands. And one of the lines in it is, I gotta go out tonight, I gotta find out what I got. It's pure poetry. Go out, when you hit record on that thing, find out what you got for yourself with your iPhone. Don't do 20 takes, do three to five max, and just go, that's what I think it is. I'm auditioning for a feature film tomorrow. I don't have the script. I've got the sides. I can't be expected to nail the tone of this movie. The tone doesn't even exist till it starts to shoot. So I get to go, well, based on these sides, who the producers are, this is what I think it is. And that's so exciting to me. Sean Benson, you also make your own stuff. How important is it to you to create? It's as important as anything I do. Yeah, it, it, it's fibrously entangled with who I am. I don't take a lot of credit for that. There, my dad's 95 and he's still writing. So A, I have a great role model for it. But also I read an article about super agers, people who are thriving in their 80s and 90s. And all the people who are super agers have something in common, which is curiosity and a willingness to engage new things. Every single person who's healthy beyond a certain age has that in common. But what science hasn't been able to figure out is why they have that trait. I don't take a lot of credit for anything I'm good at. And I honestly don't shit on myself too much for things I'm bad at unless it's a willful, you know, hurting of someone or negation of what I know the better path is. But my point is, is I've inherently been that kid and then adult my whole life. So how important is it to me? I, I wouldn't know a world in which it didn't exist and which I'm not thinking about what the next thing I want to put together is. And even a class, right, Jason, you know this. I wrote this acting teacher, John Riven. Uh, I heard he was the Meisner guy in Toronto. And I was like, hey, I'm back from LA. I hear you teach these great classes. And uh, I studied at Playhouse West for seven years and worked through the program there. And I can't wait, like, can I audit or how does this work? And he goes, I don't want to teach you. I will never teach you. I don't teach Playhouse students. And I was like, what? Oh. Um, and then I hadn't heard of anybody else teaching this way. So within a year, I went, well, I'll create Meisner in Toronto the way I want it done. F for me, like as a martial artist, you build a black belt starting from white belt so that you have someone to fight with. And if you look at the last project I created with Karen Knox, she was a Meisner student of mine. And our onset acting coach was Jess Salguero, who was a Meisner student of mine. And the movie Barn Wedding I made was all Meisner students of mine except for one person. And the play I directed was a Meisner student saying, will you direct this? And um, so it's a way of going, I want to work this way. And this other guy's got a problem with that way of working because of that school and his own relationship to his past with it. So no problem. I'll create it. There was no karate club in Toronto teaching the karate that I do. 
So I now run a karate club in Toronto. It's like, you know, it's a way to get a group of people who are on board with the thing and then do the thing. It's actually, when I say it's selfish, I don't mean it's selfish. I actually, I was talking to a jiu-jitsu coach who's a world champ, but also had a student just finally win his first series of golds in a way that he had the potential to. And I wrote him and I said, fucking congrats. You're such a good teacher. He's my teacher too. And I was like, but um, do you find that you're just as happy when one of your students wins? He goes, oh my God. Because I had a student in karate just last year do his first full contact fight and he broke the other guy's face. I was as happy for him winning as when I've won gold. And the coach said the same. He goes, I was just as happy when Sam won as when I won. When a student calls me and goes, I fucking tried your shit in the audition room. I abandoned end resulting how the scene should go. I prepared my first moment. I had the sides of my hand in case I needed them, but I knew that the behavior was more important than the words and I did it and I booked it. Dude, shivers up my spine. I know I'm going to book my next job, Jason. But when somebody else grabs a hold of this and it expands how they work, it might even, I'm 49, I don't have kids. So I'm not saying acting students or karate students are my kids. That that would be weird. But there's a pride that somebody else is benefiting from the path I walked. So anyways, I could go on and on. Um, If it ain't there, I'm going to create it. I'm a big fan of Jess's. God, she's brilliant. I love her. Don't tell her. I'm going to cut this part out. (laughs) Sean Benson, what's the main thing you would tell me, Jason Bryden, to do differently? To move move into his next uh, level of acting. Well, I can only base it on our conversations and our, our, you know, collegial friendship and also the work we've done together. But it wouldn't be too much different than anybody else. But for you, the only reason I would stress this one thing is because you also arrived with great skill and I just happened to offer this f- version of it. Just don't think about yourself. Just d- de-factor any Jason from it. Just be like, this is what's in front of me, go. This is the thing, any layer of what kind of thing it is. The flip side, Jason, is one of the things that's so fucking wonderful about your repetition and your work at class is that you kind of are watching and evaluating. You've got that program running while you're doing the work. And I wouldn't actually want that not to be there. So honestly, it's the same thing I'd tell anybody is don't think of yourself, but then don't try and mitigate yourself either. You know, there's nothing to extract. There's just nothing to think about or amplify either. Is that more of getting out of your head and getting present and in your body? I just call it unnecessary layers in anything in life. So if I made a mistake yesterday, I don't know, let's say I overshared or said something that I was worried is crap, that, that's tw- 2000s humor, that might not fly. I don't mean anything egregious, but I'm like, I immediately go, okay, cool. So is that an amends worthy thing? So now I'm into action. Is that something I need to apologize for or make a call about? If the answer is no, then it's like, great. Watch next time you're in that situation, you don't do that. And then I don't think about it again. Again, Eckhart Tolle, who I'm a big fan of, calls it story. I get locked in my story. And so what it does is it, yeah, you're talking about being present. It diminishes our ability to be in the present. And here's the thing though, Jason, and you know this from the way I love watching work. Somebody who's up on stage I mean, in let's say the Meisner milieu, 
And that's why I qualify that. And I want to explain what I mean by that. If I walk into a scene and I'm being presentational and cocky and doing arguably bad work, you need at least one person on that stage who doesn't co-sign the bullshit. So the reason I'm saying that is if you look at me and you're like, what the fuck? Because it's weird what I'm doing in any human realm. Like if I walked into your apartment doing that, it would be weird. Then it's all valid. So if I come in and I'm spiraling, even while I'm doing the scene and all I'm thinking about is I hope everyone likes me while I'm doing this scene, that's fine. It's not maybe ideal, but we're not orbs of like, Star Trek circa 1968 energy who are purely, I don't think that'd be fun to watch. So actually watching the actor in flight be whatever they will be, let's call it on camera, that's what we're getting hired for. My first TV show, I was hired as the laid back, smokes the odd joint, holds space for everybody before that was a term kind of lawyer while everybody else is all driven type A. Well, I tend to be a bit that way in life. But when I was 25 booking my first TV series, all the camera picked up was, I hope I do this scene well. So the character ended up having an intensity that was not on the breakdown. Well, first off, note to all you young actors out there, I got the job anyways because they liked what I was doing, even though it wasn't what the breakdown said. So if you rip a great take, And then you're like, oh wait, the breakdown says she's more like this. Send the great take, fuck the breakdown. I promise you that. On day five or something, I remember saying to the producer who was asked me to do certain things, I was like, yeah, but the Bible, they printed out this like 50 page Bible of who these characters were, says, she goes, oh my God, Sean, fuck the Bible, burn the Bible, we're shooting now. Once you get that audition, it's you. It's not the breakdown. Let that all go. Don't try and do the script right. Learn the words, remember what you're coming for each scene, and go. Have you seen Maestro? Yeah. That moment where uh, Lenny Bernstein goes to talk to his daughter Jamie and dispel the rumors that he's gay? Yeah. And there's that moment that goes on for an hour and a half where he's trying to decide. Yes. It's so fucking good. And then I heard B. Coops on a podcast talk about how he was, about what he was thinking. And in that take, caught on film, he was thinking about, maybe I should tell her it's true. Maybe I should get my co-writer and rewrite the end of this script. How much would that cost? Would I get permission from the studio? No, fuck that. They would fucking hate me. Forget it. Just tell her it's not true. And then he says, no, it's not true. Yes. And to me, that's like, that's gold. Because it doesn't matter where it comes from. That's right. Jason, you're describing exactly why I always say when I'm teaching, you can think anything you want, including about your own performance while you're giving it. We're taught, I was taught at George Brown that like you're thinking too much. You have to be an animal. You have to be pure. And we, we mistake in the moment for thoughtless. As humans, we've been gifted with consciousness. 
It might cause us trouble, but it's the gift of consciousness that lets us build the city I'm looking at and whatever, and think about the future and think about the past and have guilt and shame. And these are the stories we're watching. Drive to something, from something, hiding, seeking, whatever, love. It's beautiful. And so when I'm up there, the only thing, and this goes back to the concept of spiraling, the only time I ever yell at an actor if I'm coaching them, because I'm not really that guy, is if they cut themselves during a take. Because I promise you, and please young actors who are listening, don't cut yourself during a take in a, on a self-tape ever. When you think you're shitting the bed or you stumble in your head and you, you think the line, th when you rewatch that, you'll realize you didn't even really pause. In fact, it was probably freedom from knowing exactly what you were gonna say and how you were gonna say it. But because it's uncomfortable, because they don't know what's happening next, they wanna cut. And I had one wonderful actor, and she, I won't tell you her name, but we love this story, we're dear friends. And she goes, remember when you used to charge me 20 bucks extra every time I'd cut myself during a take? And it was because she would do her most extraordinary work. And I'd be sitting there behind the camera going, and then she'd cut herself because it felt uncomfortable. And so the idea that Bradley Cooper's sitting there thinking about the whole other thing, should I, shouldn't I, is all he's thinking. So should I, shouldn't I becomes what the camera catches. And the fact that it's should I, shouldn't I reshoot is irrelevant. Forgetting your line and wondering what the line is can look like the most... Jimmy Dean used to say, I don't learn my lines perfectly so that it looks like I'm really thinking. Well, the theater school teachers I had used to make fun of that. But the reality is, it's not exactly the way I wanna do it, but as he's finding his way through what he's trying to say back in the 50s, we're seeing a type of acting that had never happened before, unless you, you wanna go Brando. Um, because before that, actors rehearsed and nailed it. There's a famous apocryphal story where Olivier came off stage once and he was livid. And everyone's like, what's wrong, Larry? And he goes, I just had all these feelings and it didn't go how I wanted it to. You know? And I don't know, if you watch Olivier, there's a famous story with him and Marilyn Monroe where he was just bereft because she was dreadful to work with, held up production for eight hours at a time, had her psychologist and her Strasbourg coach there. But then he watched the dailies and he was like, oh, I can't take my eyes off her and I, I'm really wooden. Sean Benson, how much of your success do you credit your handsomeness to? Oh, a lot. A lot. Jason, I talk about this all the time, especially as, you know, in the last five or seven years, you know, we've tried to move to spaces that include way more people that haven't been included, you know, pushing the idea of women directors and, um, you know, women-centered stories and people of color and indigenous voices and all that kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm a big fan of that happening, right? Like, I'll shoot Westerns the rest of my life if that's the place for white dudes who look like me. But I got into acting and before I'd ever uttered a word, people are like, oh, leading man. Who gets granted that, Jason? Who gets granted? We wanna put a camera on you and make you the center of our story, even though you might not even be great at this. So that's absolutely handsomeness. And I appreciate the question. I appreciate the compliment. Um, I will say this, you know, when I was in high school, I was a year ahead, I'd skipped a grade. And also I had really long hair when no one thought that was cool. And I danced ballet. 
So here I was a little smaller, slender, pretty hair, dancing ballet. I got bullied almost daily for about two years. Guys wanted to fight me, make fun of me. I wasn't invited to parties, like real, real ostracizing. I did always have a couple friends. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't down and out about it. I just was confused by it, etc. The point of that story is that I didn't really think of myself as handsome till my mid twenties, and I think there's a benefit to that, which is that. By the way, I always thrived on achievement, right? It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of me if I can score more baskets than anyone else, I'll get to be captain. They don't have to like me, but my talent will make it undeniable. And I think I did carry that as a chip on my shoulder up to and including that TV show I told you about where it was like, dude, if I could have just sat still in the center of the frame more in that show, I would have done a better job. If I'd acknowledged at age 25 that I was partly there because I was handsome and just been like, camera, do your work. Have you seen this profile? Um, it actually would have been more fun. And I think I would have actually served the project better because my performance wouldn't have dripped with my, I need to prove to you I belong here. I was already there. It's the idea that it's like, you're invited to the party, dude. You don't need to put the lampshade on your head to prove it. Um, and I think a lot of us artists, you know, I do some stand-up comedy and it's especially rife in the comedy world where there's an inadequacy and an insecurity that that drives us, but there's a point where you're invited in the room where I think a lot of us keep working to get in the room and it's like, you're already in, man. And uh, so in any case, I think being handsome has totally let me just move quite easily from audition to audition, even when I wasn't thriving. And I think it's, you know, we like pretty people and in North America, I, I do and have fit that realm. And I, and I don't mind telling you, Jason, like the older I get, the more people seem to tell me I'm attractive. Like I seem to be aging well in other people's eyes and I don't hate it. You know, I wish it was more common for women as they get older, but we're talking about me right now. And, you know, I, I'll ride this wave as long as the world wants to put a camera on me and then I'll play while the camera's on. Has, has anything gotten harder as you've gotten older? You know, my relationship with unlimited potential has changed because I don't think there's such a thing anymore. Time is real. My karate teacher always says, your potential's unlimited, but your time isn't. So you walk into a karate dojo when you're seven, you could be the best martial artist the world has ever seen. But when you're 49, you're never gonna be the new Brad Pitt because he was Brad Pitt in his early 20s. You know, there's a, there's a star making and breaking thing. So it's not that I give up on the billboard on sunset. It's that the chances do diminish. And I don't wear that as a jaded thing. And there's one thing you'll never hear me say, well, as if we're going to fucking hire a white guy anymore. I think that's loser talk. I think white guys are getting hired everywhere all the time. And I think the fact that there's a little more room for other stories, there's also way more stories being told because of how many more streamers and networks and digital platforms there are. So, you know, if you look at the early mid 2000s when reality TV kicked in and it was still white man's world, we went from like 300 pilots a year to like 60 because everything was going unscripted. So it didn't matter what you looked like at that point, it was a doldrums for a couple of years. And then the wheel came back and then all of a sudden you get this um, resurgence of digital technology, letting things be shot more cheaply. So now there's so many more things happening. So even if the percentage of guys who look like me stories is smaller, 
instead of being 99%, it's down to like 80%. I don't know what the numbers are, but you know what I'm saying with this. It's 80% of a way larger number of things that are shooting. So anyways, I, um, yeah, I just think that as I get older, what gets harder is the acceptance that I might not end up being everything I thought I'd be as an actor. You know, I might not get that $20 million a movie cover of People Magazine career that I'd have passed every lie detector in the world even if my confidence was bifurcated from myself. Not totally. If you ask me at 23, are you gonna make 20 million a movie? I'm like, yeah, that's what's happening. That's what we're doing here. And by the way, 25 first series, 27 second series, US series now, 28, down working for ABC on General Hospital, like in LA, on the magazine covers again. Sure, it's daytime, but the pathway looks, and you know, a drug addiction shows up that I had going to LA. I didn't find it in LA, but knocked me out from 30 to 35. And by the way, only the first two years of that was I still drinking and using. The next three years was rebuilding a life that had nothing to do with acting. It had to do with being okay with myself. Um, greatest gift that I ever got was the time while not having to be an actor to just do 12 step, to just work with my therapist, to just read great books on growing um, and take responsibility for who I was and who I wanted to be. But that's a pretty pivotal five years when you've got this run up as a name and a new guy and then you're just gone. And by the time I'm 35, 36, I'm back in Toronto auditioning for four line parts of agent number two, which my agent would be like, feel free to pass. I'm like, no. I want to go to that audition. I want to act again. Nobody's guaranteed a career, let alone two. And that's one of my, my greatest gratitude has nothing to do with acting, but my greatest professional gratitude is that I've been able to get back what I had and more, but what I can't get back is being 28 in LA, booking your first lead role on an ABC show. That you can't get back. Time is real. Sean Benson, what was your best year and how much money did you make? Oh, well, my best year with that, I mean, my best year is this year, um, but that's not financial. Um, I shot a series, it was my second ever series, and in the calendar year, not the fiscal year, I think I made 450 grand, something like that, 500 grand. It was a, it was a good gig. It's back when shows did like 22 eps. And the way my contract was structured, if they had me for extra days, I got more than my episodic rate and they ended up liking my guy. So I ended up, you know, it was a beautiful money gig. How do you pay your taxes and do you do them yourself? No, I have an accountant. We had an accountant come to theater school named Brian Bortz. He retired, sadly. I, I love that guy. He um, was the best. He was the best. Brian Bortz, for those listening. So he came in 1997, I guess, when I was at George Brown and he it was business of acting and it wasn't about agents. It was about taxes, managing. How do you take when you make 50 grand for four apps or something and then you don't work again for six months? What does that look like? It was really practical. It's the kind of stuff we should be taught in high school. The way I look at my taxes is I'm incorporated and um, so my company gets hired and then Sean gets a salary to work for that company. And, um, you know, I always live by Brian's credo. It's got to be receipted, it's got to be reasonable, and it's got to be revenue related. You know, I'll never write off something that doesn't have a direct line to me then generating income. Um, obviously, it's got to be receipted. If you're ever audited, you're screwed. 
and revenue um, and reasonable. You know, even if it is like, like, you know, I like my watches. I, I have some nice watches. Well, there's only a percentage of that that would reasonably be written off as part of my necessary wardrobe. Um, and then a percentage above that I have to assume because it would be unreasonable to do that, let's say. So that's where I go with it. Now, for example, motorcycles. I've been hired many times because I can drive a motorcycle. So when I go to the track, that's a very reasonable, like the fact that I can do that. I've been hired as a precision driver. And then I pay taxes on that revenue. And part of the reason I get hired for those jobs is my qualifications going to the racetrack. It's one-to-one. -one. So that's receipted, revenue-related, and it's reasonable. So that's how I think about my taxes. Then what I do is I, this is actually, let, let me do a brief breakdown on this. I got into financial trouble because I always believed the next gig would bail me out of my debt. And many times that worked. But then, like I said, when I got sober, I, I thought I'd get hired and I didn't. And I was shooting commercials during that time, to be fair, but I wasn't shooting anything theatrically. And so I just kept creeping a little more and a little more into debt. So what I had to do, and I really stress this to young people or anybody of any age, vagueness of my finances was the death of any serenity or, um, you know, excellence. So I needed to know exactly what I was making exactly what I was spending, what I was spending it on, what my limit would be to spend things on. And so there's no such thing in my world as a slush fund. I don't do drugs or drink, but if you do cocaine on your budget, have, you know, whatever you're spending a week on cocaine, nobody cares. We will not judge you for what you spend your discretionary income on, but you'll get in trouble if you pretend you don't do cocaine and then you spend money on it and wonder why you're in debt. Um, it won't be the cocaine that puts you into debt, assuming you can afford it. It will be the vagueness around it. And so that's something that I really stress is it's annoying. And some people are like, oh, I hate math. It's just addition and subtraction. And if you don't do it, especially in our career where you can make a bunch and then make nothing and make a bunch, then nothing, you really have to get your head around. What do I have each month? What do I spend each month? And the big thing for me, Jason, when we talked about creating I don't really teach acting to make money, but I did shoot headshots 15 years ago. I started that business to make money. I was good at photography and some people in LA were asking me to shoot their shots. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this as a business. This is to make money. I will not buy a piece of camera gear unless it is of benefit to me generating income. Buy for a dollar, sell for two, Prop Joe, The Wire. That was my motto for my whole camera and, and headshot biz. And it was really good to go, this is not some vague idea, but the point is, is that that was a way to fill in gaps. So if I looked, let's say I shot an episode of the Flashpoint, but I knew that I was shooting it in September, means I'm not gonna get paid till October. And if I look at my September money and I'm gonna come in shy, I would just start cold calling people. Hey man, just so you know, I'm shooting headshots these days, I'm gonna send you a link to my stuff. Hope you're doing great. Cold calling is a lost art, but that's how I built my Meisner class. I hit up people I knew and I said, hey, I'm trying this experiment with this Meisner thing I learned in LA. It was super cheap. I undercut myself. I took a bath on the first number, but it was a way to go, does this work? And if it works, we'll eventually get to a place where it generates something. Um, so in any case, the reason I say all that is because when it comes to financial health, if you look ahead and there will be a shortfall, don't hope get to work. You can go find money in this world. 
you can go shovel snow or you can go get a minimum wage job and it won't feel great. But guess what feels worse? Being in debt and then going into the next audition where your need for the job has nothing to do with the joy of the job or your excellence as an actor. It has to do with the pores in your body going, I need to book this so I can get out of debt. I've seen so many actors, myself included, diminish to the point where you're offering nothing other than need. And that's not a place we wanna be. That's why I call them B jobs. Let's call your acting career your A job. Brilliant. Pursue it. But your B job is something to be grateful for at any age. Your hopes and dreams aren't what you wanted, neither are mine. But your B job is what, assuming you still wanna do this thing, lets you do this thing. When I was 35, because my perspective had shifted and I was in debt and I'd learned to mature a little, I was grateful every day I went to work for minimum wage at the print shop down at Spadina and King because by doing that, I got to live in Toronto, pay my bills. It wasn't the only job I was doing because that wouldn't have covered it, but that's my point is I was willing to hustle and say, thank you, God, every night when I went to bed. Thank you for letting me be here. And then you book the first job because you're the right person for it, not because you're craving it. My ego used to want me to say, I'm just an actor. But now, hopefully my ego's diminished to the point where none of that matters. But I do need to pay my bills. And there's two ways to do it. Lessen what your costs are or increase what your earning is. This is a total side note, Jason. I remember once I was newly sober and I was, I was trying to live in loving kindness. And I call that West Coast hippy-dippy, you know, self-help guru shit, where everything's got to be great. And I was talking to my girlfriend at the time and I was like, I'm rehearsing with the band tonight, but I'm fucking mad at the guys and the one guy's being a dick and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know how to be loving and kind. She goes, you don't have to be, just be grateful. I said, what am I supposed to be grateful for? I fucking hate it. She goes, then be grateful that you hate it. And it was the most important thing in terms of facing the truth of what gratitude is. The truth is, is that I don't know the outcome of anything. There's no faith if you know how it's gonna go. There's no faith if you're only grateful when it goes well or when you're happy with the bandmates. The faith is in saying, God is a word I use, whatever word you want, universe, or, and going, I am fucking grateful that I hate my life right now. I'm grateful that my fucking salary's in the tank and that I can't work as an actor and no one wants to hire me and I fucking hate you, God, and I don't even know why I'm saying thank you, but thank you. That's true faith because you're grateful even if it ain't what you want. And little by little, you start to get aligned with the truth. Sean Benson, it's been great talking to you. Jason Bryden, my absolute pleasure. For more of me, go to boldacting.com. You can find out about classes and coaching there. You can also read my free newsletter at boldacting.substack.com and check out all my free videos on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jason Bryden.